Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Three Peas in a Pod, the podcast from the team behind Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin. I'm Paul Jarvis, the editor, and with me is my deputy, Jonathan Davis. Hi, Paul. Today, we'll be reflecting on our recent conference, where we discussed environmental, social and governance issues. We'll also have a recap of some of the big trends that are emerging in the first weeks of 2023, before being joined by our resident snoop, Hackett P. Dealsworth, who informs me he's unearthed some of the more interesting stories of recent weeks. Hello, Jonathan. You were at our recent UK Partnerships Hub conference focusing on ESG. So what were your highlights? Well, I thought it was quite an interestingly set up conference. Actually, we broke down the E, the S and the G in different panels to discuss and really get into the nitty gritty and also had some one-on-one interviews too. So being able to kind of sit there and see the lay of the land and what the progress was like on these different letters of the acronym was really interesting. And to see how some are managing to make concrete, no pun intended, progress into, you know, having some real impact and others are still in the kind of ethereal, hard to manage, hard to get a grips of space. I mean, if we do it in order, for me, the environmental element here in that panel was really interesting to see how they've got to grips with the measurement aspect of ESG. And then the emphasis moved from measurement and then onto data and how you can actually have impacts. And then once you can measure that, you can then start to price it. And it managed to transform from just being a hot topic into an investable option and the conversation was almost always being driven on the environmental side as now the economics are there it stacks up and it's no longer a debate it makes business sense and therefore people are investing in it yeah and that sort of move to hard fact-based information is probably one of the key things isn't it and actually getting more of that sort of data is going to be really important i think isn't it in terms of how you make progress in all of these areas, really. Yeah, definitely. And I think for the S part, of it, the social part, it hadn't quite gotten to that stage yet. It was still not totally clear how you get from the outcome that you want to the mechanism that you use to deliver it. There clearly work being done on that, but it, it definitely isn't quite there. And then finally, with the G, that to me felt a little bit more like people had kind of made good progress and knew the kind of ways that they wanted to instill these values into their companies and also the public sector because the G really does underpin all of ESG. It's not just the added extra. Without the right decision making, none of this happens. And these are value-driven decisions a lot of the time. They're not quite clear from the off. So having strong leadership and strong structures and frameworks to make sure that ESG stays at the top of people's priorities when there's so many difficult circumstances around there is really critical in in maintaining the focus and the progress. Yeah, definitely. And just going back to your sort of point about the S, the social element being perhaps a little bit behind perhaps some of the other areas. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because that is an area that actually can have huge outcomes in terms of the PPP industry, you know, the partnership element of PPP should be all about raising the standards, raising the benefits for a local community, because that's the kind of outcomes that the public sector will all often be looking for. So actually getting that side of things and that kind of data and being able to make 
estimates and expectations around how you improve local communities is probably going to be really crucial for all PPP projects. Yeah, absolutely. And the S part of it is something which, from going over and talking to our friends in the United States, is really, really at the fore of their ESG movement, perhaps a little bit more so than it is in Europe. And we're seeing in their projects, thinking of the Pennsylvania Bridge Programme, it's got some really amazing, strong focuses on trying to lift up communities as a whole rather than driving a motorway right through the heart of it. So different places are doing it differently, but we can all learn lessons from these different sides. And I think that that lesson learning emphasis is still right at the heart of of ESG. Yeah, definitely. Another area where we're sort of seeing progress, I guess, on that social side is around the mutual investment model, where there is a real strong emphasis on local supply chain, local people being involved in not just the asset that is created at the end of it, but actually the the creation of that in in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And we saw that at CCPPP last year, which is the Canadian Council's public-private partnership conference, where the role of Indigenous populations in projects and getting not just permission, but also the benefits out to these communities was a really strong focus. And so Again, it's really interesting to see how different communities are getting involved in these projects at the same time as just using them. Yeah, and I think another point there that perhaps is not just about the data, that I think there was quite a focus actually from the conference, from different people at different points referring to different parts of the conference, the E, the S and the G, on actually bringing people with you and making the case to the public sector. And I think it often comes out on the energy transition side that that's where you need to get people aligned and not just the businesses, but the actual individuals as well. Yeah, absolutely. We saw that from some of the you know real public sector leaders that were at the conference and they're trying to change what people think about their home lighting systems as well as these contracts that, that we all talk about. We had a guest there from Luton Rising, it was Graham Olver, and he helps lead Luton Airport which is one of the country's biggest and the way which he was describing what they're doing is to try and create an enabling environment for change to happen across all levels of the community and that idea of creating something that is self-sustaining in the change that it forms because it's we also have to be aware that social impact changes as time goes on if you make it better in one area you've then got a new target to hit after that comes in so creating an environment that can keep going and install kind of these positive values and looking forward and long-term view is critical but on the flip side of that you have to also have business sometimes changing their mind from just the responsibility being the bottom line and and that can be a push but in the case of Graham he was saying that you know you also have a choice as an asset what kind of as an asset manager, what kind of investor you want to have involved in your project. So thing, things are changing. Yeah, and that's definitely a thing, I think, for the private sector to take away and to bear in mind. I know there are increasingly private investors and developers out there who whose focus is more around or as much around the impact that they have, whether that be social, environmental or otherwise on their on the communities in which they're working rather than it being about all about the bottom line all about how much money that are we going to make from this project and i think more and more and i think we talked a little bit about this in some of the sessions there as well the way the procurement rules work and i guess less the way that they work more the way they're interpreted 
is increasingly focused around that side of things and trying to engage that sort of partnership working, collaborative working that is less about, again, you know, just how much money is this firm going to make? What are the transaction outcomes? And much more about what are the human outcomes of this? Yeah, absolutely. It goes from that transactional approach of just how much can I make from this into how can we be, say, the best partner to help take these big problems? And um, I do think we're seeing more and more that kind of investor mindset coming forward. And particularly on the environmental one, or just on environmental alone, you see trillions put forward in these, you know, in these grand conferences. And that is money which, you know, perhaps it could have got a better return if it went on to an oil and gas plant, or at least a sooner return. I think that's kind of the key element that we heard from a couple of the panels was that maybe the pathway isn't quite there yet. But the value of value investing is is really game changing. Yes. And I think another bit to add on to that really is around so Hugh Williams from from the Bayes department spoke a little about investment and, and investment options. And one of the things he mentioned was winning hearts and minds of of individual people around things like getting people to replace their gas boilers with maybe a hydrogen boiler or heat pump or some sort of more environmentally sustainable approach. And you know, his point was that actually there's a huge amount of carbon that can be taken out of the system if we just get everyone in the country to change their gas boilers but that can't be done on a, a government mandate basis really it has to be done in conjunction with local people in conjunction with individuals and that's where a lot of the kind of the wins will be yeah totally and i think that was another element which um joe tilly from the crown commercial service said it kind of struck me as interesting because he said we need to make this boring in a way that sometimes the new innovative solutions can seem a little bit out of reach for ordinary people, but something such as replacing your gas boiler, if there's a viable alternative that is boring, economic, it's a no-brainer for everybody and, and it ticks all the boxes. And once that economic case, like I mentioned in the environmental section earlier on, once it becomes a viable economic alternative decision to make and it becomes a correct economic decision to make, you then unleash the whole market on it. And that is the goal is to create markets that are self-sustaining and scale up and that is where the impact happens i think another point actually that hugh made uh, as i say from base was the desire that's there on both sides to do this investment work that's needed he was clear that there's a strong desire for engagement with the private sector but also that the private sector is eager to engage with base and with other government departments to actually deliver on this so that's really positive and, and encouraging, I think, as well. Totally. It's where Mark Williams from SIPFA said this, where he was saying that the private sector is incentivized in these PFI, PPP structures on the life cycle energy element of these contracts. So he used the case of, I think it was a million pounds worth of sensors and artificial intelligence predictions by the private sector to bring the energy costs down because it make sense for them they make more money out of it so it's a win-win and just staying on the kind of viable market element of this we've seen major legislation in the usa and the inflation reduction act to try and help stimulate and create these viable markets to scale up the 
introduction of green technologies. And it looks like we're going to see the same thing in the European Union and probably with the UK. So this sector is going from strength to strength. And really the sky is the limit for those who can take these opportunities early and be first movers and develop the business cases that help get, whether it's retrofitting or EV charging off the ground, this is the tide that's coming. Yeah, absolutely. I think one other thing perhaps that we haven't mentioned, but did come up, I think, particularly again in the social section of the event, was the role of PFI and PVP and the historical view that PFI in particular is you know, an inflexible contract that locks in public sector to repayments, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it was Laura Coates from Clyde & Co who made this point that obviously during the pandemic in particular, we saw major reconfigurations of buildings, particularly in the health sector, in the space of a few short weeks. You know, contracts were not set aside, but they were put down and the work that needed to be done was done with a view that the kind of contractual obligations would be returned to when time allowed, when it was possible to do so. You know, there's a cost that's associated with all that work, and that was largely borne by the private sector. So I think it can be easy to forget that. I think when we're talking about the public-private sector divide and, and how things work and that sort of requirement for more investment, that it does need to be kind of an acknowledgement, I guess, that the private sector is there and, and has been there for some for many years, putting in the time, the effort, the money in a way that can sometimes be overlooked. And I think that's a big part of this question of developers, investors being part of a long-term partnership and not just being all about the final returns. Well, it's been a pretty busy start of the year beyond the conference, and there's been a lot happening in the market around the world. So here at Partnerships Bulletin, P3 Bulletin, we've been preparing the next stage in our own evolution. So in February, we'll start providing more market intelligence from the pre-tender stage. Using our new tool, we'll be able to bring to light more early stage discussions of P3s, starting with authorities in California and Florida, but over the course of this year, expanding to other parts of the US and then around the world. The plan is to be able to give subscribers alerts to where PPPs are being considered from a much earlier stage so that they can prepare for what's coming down the track. So watch this space on that. And there should be plenty of opportunities to source too if the first few months of the year are anything to go by. Jonathan, do you want to talk a bit about some of the trends we're seeing? Absolutely. I think it's safe to say we've had a really strong start, particularly in North America, when it comes to P3's new tenders. And not just new ones, these are really major tenders that are coming through. Perhaps first and foremost is a huge new project in New Jersey, Dorrance Street Transit P3. A huge, complicated new project, which is going to revitalize and bring together lots of different forms of transit in New Jersey and included in that it also has a couple of the big buzzwords of a transit oriented development and a progressive P3 together so to my mind a progressive P3 should help bring those complexities under control but it is also new ground so that's going to be really interesting the Hudson Tunnel which has been a political football for ages in New York is now looking for a partner was in the early stages for looking for a partner which is using, for the first time in America, the contract model that's been used in HS2, which is the high-speed rail in the UK. So that's interesting. We've also seen in Panama a big 
highway p3 that's coming forward so those are just a couple of the touches that are, that are happening and they are happening across north america airports in the virgin islands and also in south america colombia has been getting some projects online as well california sepulveda is picking up steam so really it's been a pretty strong start to the year also in europe and some of the emerging markets we've got the 10th round of ofto there's been a 675 million pound joint venture in, in east london been tendered and something which i'm really interested to see how this develops a 1000 kilometer ppp highway stretching across west africa that would be fascinating so Really, what that picture kind of tells me is PPPs are on the mind of authorities across the globe. And whether that's in the United States with 1.2 trillion from IIJA and also loads more money from the IRA legislation and also the CHIPS Act is also fueling big projects. There's a lot of infrastructure that's going to need to be delivered. And whilst that's an opportunity for everyone, it also does make it kind of difficult to see how competition is going to be maintained across all of these projects. We've seen in Canada, a couple of projects now have only pulled in maybe one or two bidders. And while some of them are progressive P3s, so you can understand that a little bit more, it does pose a little bit of a threat. Yes, definitely. I think yeah, you mentioned obviously all the, the money from the federal government in the US and that just going back to our conference very briefly, that was something that was mentioned there as well. Obviously, uh, you know, UK focused conference, there was a clear recognition uh, from people there that the impact of that is going to warp the market for the UK, for the Europe and the, and the rest of the world in terms of how you scale up projects, how you, you get the supply chain up and running and, and get them interested in a market when you know, you've got all this investment and all these incentives across the pond in, in the US. And I think as well, there was a mention of Europe, the EU potentially looking to do the same. So that's another potential difficulty, I guess, for the UK sitting there in between the two at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And we can either say that it's going to warp it or it's going to change it. And these are changes that we've all been asking for and looking forward to. And I think, I know this is early doors to say this, but last year, particularly in America, you had a lot of the detail and the pipe work being done to try and connect this big vat of money to flow down into the authorities to make projects come forward. And it looks like that's actually now starting to flow. And if you take that New Jersey transit, that as a transit oriented development, that was the big word for me at P3C, the big conference in Texas last year. And now we're seeing these projects really come forward on a major scale. So whether these green projects might also take a bit longer to come through maybe it'll be next year we'll be talking about massive evs and across the world you can see that this blueprint does actually start to convert and i'm hoping that if that momentum keeps coming forward 2023 we could see huge amounts of projects coming forward yeah and again it's an evolution isn't it and i think one of the things that we sort of flagged up just before christmas was the arrival of the Niagara Hospital in Canada, in Ontario, reaching preferred bidder stage. And I think a few eyebrows raised to see that the preferred bidder was a consortium of Elliston and Plenary, who you know, traditionally you'd see them fighting out against each other as, as equity bid leaders. But you know, talking to a few people in that market, I think what is becoming apparent is that A, because of the complexity of the deals, B, because of the number of projects that are around, we're going to start seeing 
perhaps tie-ups between companies that we wouldn't normally expect to have seen in the past. And I think that's probably going to become more prevalent as more projects come out this way as well. And I guess it's it's one way of, of dealing with that question of the amount of projects and the number of bidders on each deal. Definitely. I think one to watch on that will be the US Navy's project in California, Point Loma, because that could be, a, it, well, we know that it's absolutely massive. To, to see how the teams line up on that will be really interesting. That one's currently out to tender at the moment. Yes. And actually, just, just popping back north again to Canada for a second, and the, the Halifax Hospital in Nova Scotia, I think, is another interesting one where you know you had a number of bidders who have pulled out of the project, so they're down to just one bidder. Things went quiet for a while. And then, again, I think it was just before Christmas that it was announced they would be proceeding with the single bidder. And you know, now they're closely working together on the contract. It's almost evolved into a progressive model, kind of by accident rather than design. I'm not sure whether that's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, but it certainly shows that there is a, an evolution happening in the way that projects, I think particularly in Canada, but seen it elsewhere as well. Totally. I, I mean, I remember asking CCPPP, a, a major Canadian procurer, whether they were worried about this competition element, and they weren't. They were quite happy to you know, proceed with ambitious pipelines and um, particularly progressive P3s could eliminate this risk with the right advisors and when they're done properly it might be a way out, but they also come with their own complications as well. Yeah, and we've talked before about progressives on this podcast. We've also, I know you've done a feature looking specifically at the issues, and so I don't want to go into too much here, but I think there's definitely a question really still around making sure you get the right competition and the right level of competition, I should say, into these projects, while at the same time getting the benefits of having the early engagement, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. And I just mentioned advisors and the key role they play. And I know it's something that you've been following at the start of this year. We've seen some advisory firms kind of pivot. So what's going on there, Paul? Yes. So two in particular that we've sort of covered quite closely, WSP and Mott McDonald. And the sort of the key thing that is similar between the two is that they are sort of looking at a more holistic, long-term alignment of their services with their clients. So I think my understanding, certainly from having had a few conversations around this, is that increasingly advisors are seeing clients coming to them, public sector clients coming to them and saying, we want to do X, Y, and Z, but it needs to be a a long-term arrangement. And we need from early days to through to project completion and beyond into operation. And I think there's a you know an increasing recognition from advisors that actually they can play a role right through this process and that there is the demand there now. I think particularly in the UK, again, you know, we've seen over the recent years, the number of joint venture coming out from local authorities seeking, you know, partners to enter long-term arrangements for, you know, a regeneration project, which is therefore a lot more than just, we want you to build a new building, whether it be a hospital or school or something. It's more of a design challenge because it's, covering a larger area and different assets, different types of housing, perhaps different tenures of housing, different public buildings, you know, space for private sector buildings, all that joined in into one. And, you know, things like rental demand comes into it, whether you can sell some land or sell some buildings off, all this kind of stuff that advisors are now sort of honing in and saying, well, actually we can do all those elements for you and, you know, provide the complete service and actually from a public sector authority point of view, that's 
should or should be quite attractive because it means you get that whole package through one. You don't, you know, you're doing one procurement for the advisors, and then you also you know, get that benefit in terms of when you're procuring then the private partner to actually deliver the work as well. Fantastic. Well, I've said a little bit about what's going on in kind of North America. So, what's happening here, Paul? What's happening in the UK at the moment? Well, I think it's the same story to a certain extent, dominated by two issues. Unfortunately, for many in the industry, it's neither of them, neither of those issues are the procurement of new projects, um, but it's the expiry of existing contracts. And interlinked with that is the difficulties surrounding the management of realistically a handful of existing projects. I think on the latter point, we know, of course, that the IPA is progressing this independent review of behaviours, uh, which was announced again sort of back end of 2022. I think there's some questions emerging in the market around what that's going to look like, what that's going to mean. There's been you know, little information really beyond the initial announcement about what the review hopes to achieve. So there's some question marks there, I think, around what this review is going to deliver mm-hmm. and what the ultimate outcome is in terms of dealing with some of these difficulties and whether it can be used as a a way of tackling these issues or is it going to be perhaps an internal report? Yeah, because we do see projects getting going through the handback process and doing it smoothly and, and setting an example in that way. And every time we talk about handback or every round table that we go to, there's always the caveat of let's not let these small amount of projects that have degenerated into this into difficult process poison the whole debate so like i said there are some questions in the market about the review but i think everyone is happy to see it actually happening yes definitely there's definitely um a lot of positivity in terms of the fact that the ipa has commissioned this i think the danger is that positivity will wane and the concern from some is that actually they'll start to feel like it's just another almost box ticking exercise and there's not necessarily any real change going to come from it but that's a cynical point of view, really, because we're we're in the middle of that review taking place at the moment. So, what the outcome of that is, we probably shouldn't shouldn't look to prejudge. But I do think there's some already some sort of, I guess, scepticism from some in the industry. Right. Well, it's time now to catch up again with our resident Snoop Hackett, P. Dealsworth, to see what he's dredged up from the underbelly of the PPP world. Hackett, how was your festive break? Fan dabby dozy tastic. I mean, what's not to like? Turkey, goose, mince pies, all manner of alcoholic beverages, and that was just for breakfast. Right. Well, moving on, what do you have for us today? Well, Paul, I'm beginning to wonder if we're actually the bad guys. Oh yes, in what sense? Well, not necessarily us here at Bulletin Towers, but the industry. You see, if you can stretch your mind back to before Christmas, you might remember that Tennessee came out with a plan to look at P3s. I do indeed remember. We wrote about how the state DOT was lobbying for law changes to allow it to catch up with some neighbouring states, I think, by using P3 to deliver more new infrastructure. Spot on. Only not everyone was so positive about the plans. This is what local Republican Senator Frank Nicely said in his response. And I quote, Mussolini liked those public-private partnerships. They called it fascism back then. I mean, where do you begin when it comes to picking the bones out of that? I'm close to being flabbergasted. Indeed, not so nicely. I suppose at this point we could get into a debate about whether all ideas emanating from bad people are themselves inherently bad, 
But we're infrastructure journalists, not philosophers. Well, speak for yourself. Some of us prefer to occupy the murky middle ground which exists between the two professions. Anyway, that's not all. An article by the McKinnock Centre for Public Policy warned that P3s could be viewed as a quote-unquote a vector for corruption, whatever that is. Well, whatever it is, it doesn't sound good, does it? I take your point, Hackett. It can sometimes feel like we're writing about some evil empire looking to take over our existing well-run services. And then you take a look at the current state of play in the world and remember that failing to think differently and simply following the status quo is getting us nowhere. So new thinking and working together are desperately needed. Perhaps I can offer some reassurance with an anecdote of my own? At this point, Paul, I think a hug would be more reassuring than an anecdote, but it's certainly worth a try. I'm sure your wife will give you a good hug, Hackett, once she returns from her eight-month sabbatical in the Bahamas. I think you should move on to your anecdote, pronto. Fair enough. I recently watched a programme about Ironbridge, the village in Shropshire, England, where the first iron bridge to span a body of water was installed. Now, apparently, it was originally estimated to cost £3,000, but ended up costing over 6000 So if anyone thinks that people were better at evaluating costs, risks and contingencies back in the olden days, then they need to think again. Sharing out the risks of such things seems to be a far more egalitarian way of doing things than, say, Mussolini might have allowed. Well, that does make me feel a bit better, Tarkov. Do you think Mussolini gave good hugs? I very much doubt it, Hackett. Until next time. Until next time. Arrivederci. Arrivederci.